Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. Seniors deserve to have a life with respect, dignity, and fulfillment. But as we transition into elderhood, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here are Phyllis and Rubina. Welcome to Senior Straight Talk, where we present informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. Our show, which began in September 2019, was formerly known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. And as with Senior Straight Talk, all episodes of the previous show are archived on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and can be downloaded on popular podcast platforms. Please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. And I'm Phyllis Amon, your host, here today with Rubina Chaudhry, my co-host, who's in uh, Fullerton, California. How are you doing, Rubina? I'm very well, Phyllis. Good to be talking with you. Uh, likewise, uh, by this time I would have been out in California, but um, unfortunately uh, we're not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> and you are in, on the East, Co- East Coast. Right, so um, uh, hopefully we'll get there um, at some point in time. When, we don't know, but I'll be thrilled when I can visit you again. That'd be great. Um, And talking about being thrilled, I'm thrilled and grateful to have as our guest today Dr. Al Power, whose work in dementia is well-respected and known around the world. And I'll just uh, give a brief intro, or as I was saying before we started, we could spend the entire time talking about Dr. Power's um, accomplishments. But he's a board-certified internist and geriatrician, newly named Schlegel Chair in Aging and Dementia Innovation at the Schlegel University in, um, at the Waterloo Research Institute for Aging in Ontario, Canada. He's also Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Rochester, New York, a Fellow of the American College of Physicians, American Society for Internal Medicine, and an international educate, educator on transformational models of care for older adults, particularly those living with changing cognitive abilities. Uh, His work dedicated to persons with dementia, as I said, is well-known around the globe, and um, he's been, his media interviews span from New York to Australia to Japan. I mean, his his work and his reach is extraordinary. So thanks so much, Dr. Power, for agreeing to share your time with us today. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you so much, Phyllis and Rubina. It's good to be here. So I guess... You know, my first question would be um, for our listeners, what would you say are are early signs of dementia that people would be able to to see in their loved ones or actually in in themselves? Uh, It's it's a little bit different with different people, but there are certain patterns I think that people need to watch out for. Um, And and I know this causes a lot of... uh, consternation in people who get to be about my age and walk into the kitchen and wonder why they came in there. But, <laughs> but it's important. It's just important to remind people that a certain amount of that sort of forgetfulness um, happens anywhere from about age of 40 on up. And so just doing that, you know, misplacing your car keys, uh, you know, once in a while does not mean 
that you have dementia or that you're going to get dementia. But dementia is uh, a condition where usually more than one type of thinking process is affected. So memory is often an issue. and being able to recall facts, names, uh, places, those types of things. But there may be other areas where people have trouble. Other places where people may see difficulty would be uh, in the area of um, knowing how to orient themselves to find a way so people may get lost while driving or walking uh, along a formerly well-known path. People may have difficulty with language, with finding the right words to say what they want to say. They may have more difficulty with, um, with, you know, working with numbers, and they may have trouble with what we call executive functions. Sometimes this is an early thing that, um, that you or someone you know may notice about you, which is uh, executive functions basically basic planning and problem-solving skills. So do you pay your bills on time? Do you know what to do if you smell smoke? Uh, do you know what to do if you, uh, you know, can't find your purse or your phone? Um, so sort of the basic, you know, how do I, the multi-step skills, not just how do I, how do I you know, use the toilet or, or wash myself, but how do I integrate several uh, levels of thinking into solving problems or planning things uh, properly. And uh, once again, the, the people may have all trouble with, with these things from time to time. I'm sure I've paid a couple bills late in my life, but it just <laughs> becomes a pattern. <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know. Everybody's <laughs> looking at themselves saying, oh, is it me? You know, um, but, but it is a pattern. It's scary. And, and, and it not only has to be a pattern, but it needs to be uh, significant enough to interfere with your daily life. Because there are a lot of people that don't quite score well on the, on the cognitive tests, but they're still getting along okay. And we don't really, at this point, uh, we're not labeling that, at least clinically, we're not labeling that dementia. Um, it may just be that people were nervous when they took the test and maybe they were feeling a bit depressed or anxious. Or it may be that people sort of fall in that in-between ground where they're not quite normal, but they don't quite have enough difficulty to call dementia. And we even have a category for that now, which we call MCI or mild cognitive impairment. And, uh, right. and so there's, there's, there's a name for everybody <laughs> along the <laughs> spectrum. But, but, but it really is a spectrum, and I think that's really important for people to know. And not everybody with mild cognitive impairment necessarily needs to uh, go on and get dementia. We used to think that it was sort of a pre-dementia condition, and it is for some people. But other people um, never seem to progress beyond that when we follow them for several years. So, so it's it's very messy. And I guess that I guess that the the big me- the big message here is there definitely is a definition or a criteria, uh, a set of criteria for dementia. But um, but it's very individual, and uh, there's a lot of gray areas uh, along the way. So if you have concerns, obviously getting a, an evaluation is the best way to figure it out. So I was just going to ask about that when you said test. Would you say that most um, physicians in in family practice, if they're not specifically trained as a geriatrician, uh, recognize those symptoms or signs? Do they give those tests? Where would people go to get those tests? And uh, what are some of those tests? Yeah, there are, a lot of, there, there are a lot of different levels of tests. There are a couple of basic cognitive evaluations that people do, um, different scales. One's called the Folstein scale. One's called the, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. So there are different uh, tests that people uh, uh, commonly use. Um, and most, uh, most general practitioners are aware of it and tend to administer those tests. I think it's still, in many cases, left up to the individual doctor. Some people probably do it routinely in people over a certain age uh, with their annual physical exam. 
Other doctors may wait until they hear about concerns or complaints before they check it. So I think that the, the actual practice of that varies. I think most doctors are very fluent with those basic tests. But those tests, while they, are, they can often pick up people that may have some problems, they are somewhat crude and imprecise, too. So if you really, if, if there's a red flag that's raised, but either by the person's uh, concerns or by those screening tests, then the next thing to do would be to do further evaluation, to do yeah. uh, blood tests, x-rays, and probably have them see a specialist for more, um, more specific what they call neurocognitive exams. Right. I was thinking that when you were saying that, that <clears throat> many people may not be so, or they may be reluctant, I should say, to admit to anyone, whether it's their doctor or anyone, that they're, they're having those kinds of difficulties because I think there's a fear factor associated with that diagnosis. Uh, yeah, there is, there is definitely a fear factor. Dementia, for most people, I think now has become a more feared disease than cancer. Um, I say disease. Dementia is actually a syndrome. It's not one disease. It can be caused by a hundred different things, either diseases or injuries to the brain. But, but we see it as a condition which is obviously much feared. But I think you're also touching on a larger point here. We could certainly, uh, we could probably spend the whole hour talking about it. We won't do that. But, but um, there not only is a fear of the actual condition, which obviously causes um, disability for people, but there is also a lot of stigma in our society about dementia. And a lot of the hiding of the symptoms is because people know that, unfortunately, in society, people are treated like less of a person when they have this label. And they often um, are, have, have decisions and things taken away from them, even long before they may have difficulty with those abilities. And uh, so, so it's understandable that people don't want to start down that slippery slope of being disempowered in society because of mm -hmm. that name, dementia. The, uh, you know, Rubina, uh, we've talked about the fact that your mother is experiencing some cognitive decline. Uh, has she, does she acknowledge that to you, or has she ever acknowledged that to you, or is it something that you recognized and brought up in the conversation? And No, uh, several months ago she did acknowledge that, and... Uh, you know, she was she was aware of it that she was beginning to forget some things, but I began to recognize it more and more in my conversations with her. Mm -hmm. so she she recognized it. There so was I a study that the uh, Alzheimer's Association did oh five or four or five years ago, uh, where they found that um, when doctors make a diagnosis of dementia in the U.S., at least with the sample they interviewed, they were actually telling the person the diagnosis less than half the time. Mm. And um, there were several reasons given for that, uh, but most of the reasons were uh, things that I could point to, stigma and fear. Either the doctor was afraid of upsetting the person or the family member didn't want the person to know, or um, you know, one, one of the ones that maybe didn't sound like stigma was the doctor saying, well, I wasn't 100% sure of the diagnosis, but I still write that to stigma because I, I've known very few doctors who were afraid to share their opinion, even if they weren't 100% sure. Right. So I think that's, I I think that's I a agree. surrogate for stigma. <laughs> oh, well, working with a lot of doctors over the years. But um, that's an interesting point because I don't think doctors are reluctant to tell people that they think they have cancer. Absolutely not, because they want to, they want to uh, engage them in treatment. And once again, there's a sense of 
hopelessness around dementia, that there's nothing that can be done because it can't be cured. So you could diagnose something that has a very uh, poor uh, survival rate, like pancreatic cancer, and yet you're still going to tell the person that you're going to treat them if it's appropriate uh, to try to to prolong their lives or improve their lives. Um, the truth is that there's so much you can do uh, for people living with dementia. It's not a cure, and it's not even slowing down whatever their uh, rate of change might be, but there's so much you can do to create meaningful and, and full lives for people after a diagnosis. And, and this is what a lot of my colleagues who are advocates living with dementia are speaking and writing about these days. And so I think that's the one area where, unfortunately, I think a lot of doctors uh, don't have the knowledge. They just think, okay, you know, here's your Aricept, here's your Nemenda, that's all we can do. When the truth is there's tons we can do if we get people hooked up with the right uh, kinds of support networks, the right information, and be really proactive about supporting people's well-being. You know, that's, a, that's an interesting point, uh, Dr. Power. Could it be that, that doctors don't want to sort of, you know, label the stages so that the, the, the patient or the person stays more active instead of just saying, oh, well, now I'm getting dementia and this is it? Could it be part of that psychosomatic trying to encourage people to be more and continue to be I, more active? I suppose it could for some. I think a lot of it has to do with the personality and the approach of, of the individual, individual physician and maybe the, the, the person and their family members that they are working uh-huh. with as well. Um, my personal feeling is that the best way to help people to, to, uh, to you know, avoid falling into that dependency trap is actually to, give, to, to be truthful and to give people the tools that they need to take charge and be as much self-advocates uh, and be empowered as much as possible to uh, and, and supported to live well. Because you can, uh, one of the things that really has changed my thinking is, although dementia certainly, certainly um, involves very real disease and injury to the brain, you can look at dementia through the lens of a social model of disability. Because people that have dementia are disabled in some ways, maybe more cognitively than physically, but when people have a disability, we provide all kinds of supports and accommodations to help them to engage fully and live well, and when we see dementia that way, it changes the landscape about what we can offer people after a diagnosis. Uh, I get it. There there is work in the literature. Um, I don't know if doctors subscribe to this. I want to ask your opinion about it um, in terms of uh, describing stages of dementia or recognizing stages of dementia. You know, there are three stages, seven stages. What are your feelings about that? Yep, I've heard of three, I've heard of seven, I've heard of 21. <laughs> you know, uh, people, people love pigeonholes. I think the doctors and researchers love to have ways to quantify what's going on, and I understand that. And uh, I certainly see where some of those tests and some of those stagings might be useful for research. If you're, for instance, testing a pill, uh, to see if it is actually slowing the progression of dementia. Well, how do you, how do you determine what progression is? So I can see where stages come about. Um, but my personal view as, as someone who has been a practitioner and educator 
and my view of what I what I espouse for people that support people either personally or professionally with dementia is that I don't really uh, subscribe to stage theory. And um, the reason I don't is because, well, a couple, there's a few reasons, actually. First of all, the stages that we use are somewhat, uh, I'm going to use the word reductionistic. And what that means is they oversimplify and, and over, you know, make things black and white where they are much more nuanced than that. So uh, stages talk about some very discrete levels of cognitive ability, like what can you remember, what can you do as far as activities of daily living. They say nothing about such things as can you play the piano, can you uh, read a book mm-hmm. to a child, can you provide uh, comfort to somebody who is in distress. So, so all these very human, very important characteristics are not measured in these tests. They're just, you know, can you subtract a hundred from or seven from a hundred five times in a row, or can you spell the word world backwards, or can you remember, you know, five objects as we see in the news these days? Um, right. <laughs> uh, and that, that doesn't tell you much about your capabilities as a human being. And so to say, well, someone has staged this uh, kind of gives us lowered expectations for what that person can do because we, we base their whole personhood on, on you know, what they, what they can remember as far as the five objects or something like uh, that. So I think we have self-fulfilling prophecies when we don't give people enough uh, credit for what they're able to do. But the other thing that's more dangerous is that um, we start blaming what people are experiencing on the stages instead of looking more deeply. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a person who, for example, is living in a nursing home and uh, maybe maybe uh, a care assistant is is trying to help them with a shower, and the person is resisting the shower. Um, now there could be a world of things that actually can be cured in that situation. Okay, first of all, they may be rotating staff so that strangers are coming in and taking off their clothes. That's number one. Stop doing that. Okay, right. and mm-hmm. I know people that that have got amazing pathways for for creating consistent assignment patterns. Um, another thing is that maybe there's something about the person's shower and maybe their life in general at the home where their uh, feelings of security and choice and control are not being uh, fully supported. So they're in a situation where they feel threatened. And, and you can change that by how you, how you, you know, replenish those aspects of a person's well-being. And, um, but if the stage says at stage five, people are going to start having dementia-related behaviors, well, then they're going to get an antipsychotic, and you're going to continue doing the horrible things that make any of us say, I don't want this person giving me a shower. So that may be a little bit overly simplistic, but I think as you look through the nuances, this happens again and again. So I think there are a lot of difficulties with this. I just have a funny story to share because one of my greatest teachers uh, of dementia was a man living with dementia, and that's the late Dr. Richard Taylor, who was a psychologist who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's at age 59 and ended up going out traveling the world, writing, writing a book and doing videos. And we traveled together and gave talks together, and he became a great friend and a great teacher. And he was on a, a radio interview once where they asked him what stage he thought he was. <laughs> and, and, he said, you know, and he said, much like I did, he said, you know, I really don't think of myself in stages. I like to, I like to think that things are, are a little bit more unique and individual than that. But he said, I guess if, if, if you had to, if you, had to uh, you know, pin me down, I guess I would say I'm probably stage four. And the radio interviewer said, for A, B, or C. <laughs> so, oh. so this was a person that was trying to put him in a box, and he was trying right. his best to stay out of the box. But, but I, I, you know, and the other thing that happens, and fortunately we're finally moving away from this, our education systems, 
uh, systems. But for years, uh, in, in, in formal recreation therapy programs, they've been teaching people to use these, you know, scales of deterioration mm. and then assign people activities based on where they score on the scale. And right. uh, once again, uh, you know, if you look at the individual, it, it makes little sense. You could, you could have John, who's a, who's a married farmer with six children who loves baseball and loves hikes, and you could have Mary, who's a single nurse who loves crossword puzzles and loves opera, and if they score the same on a, on a mental status test, does that mean they should be offered the same activities? You know, these, these things are, uh, have led us to these institutional practices that don't help people at all. And then I they agree. blame their dementia when they don't do well. <laughs> I agree, and, and it also lends one, uh, leads one to think what the per- look at them in terms of disability, in terms of capability. Uh, rather Absolutely. than looking at what they still can do, uh, oh well, they just can't do all of these things, and um, they they look at their they're looking at them through the prism of their diagnosis and their disabilities, rather uh, rather than through the prism of this is a person and they they have this uh, whether it's Alzheimer's is a disease or they have this uh, you know sequelae of symptoms, um, but but this is what they're still able to do, and let's see if we can plan for their lives based on, based on that, even if it's something, you know, functional things. Like um, I was in a facility several years ago, and there was a gentleman. He was in, I don't want to even say advanced, I'll just say, well, he, he, his cognitive decline had exacerbated. <laughs> trying to yeah, find the sure. words, right? Well, yeah, and, well, people's um, disability does get worse over time in many cases. You're right. Right. And so, um, but he had been a, um, he had been a contractor and he had been, um, he was involved in, in tiling and, and um, construction for most of his life, uh, most of his life. And he used to go around when they were doing construction or any kind of building in the facility and check things. Even though he was at a, a rather advanced stage of decline, he was still able, this was something that was fundamental to him. It was part of his being. And he could point out things, you know, that weren't even because this is what he did his entire life. And they allowed yeah. him to do it which was a wonderful thing. They recognized that, and he'd interact with people who were doing construction in the facility or any kind of building, if they were repairing a bathroom or whatever they were doing. And this was a wonderful thing because he felt a sense of usefulness and, and involvement and relatedness and a sense of purpose connected to what he did his entire life. And, and, and you know, Phyllis, I think you're, you're hitting on the fundamental point, and that is that every person with dementia remains a unique, very individual person. Uh, regardless of what's going on in their brains, everybody experiences those brain changes differently based on their, their own history and their personality and their strengths and coping skills. And, um, and so the problem with some of these other formulas, like saying this is a stage or even this is what a kind of dementia looks like, is it takes us away from seeing the individual, and uh, you don't discover those things that can be life-giving to people after a diagnosis. You know, that uh, that uh, uh, reminds me of a story about my dad when he was beginning to have uh, dementia. He was in independent living uh, in uh, in British Columbia, mm-hmm. and one day he said to me, "You know, I think I should retire now. I'm twenty." I'm 92 years old. I think it's too much for me to go to work every day. 
And I'm saying, okay, yeah. let's see. So then I talked to the staff and I said, you know, my dad's saying this. He said, no, he gets up, gets dressed, comes every morning and he's helping with all these chores. So he was thinking that he was going to work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And spending a very productive day. Right. It gave him a sense of meaning, spending a productive day. Absolutely. And I think that's really important, too. And so, once again, you know, and Dr. Stephen Sabat wrote a wonderful book about 20 years ago about Alzheimer's, where he talked about that exact thing that you mentioned, Rabina, where a woman was uh, going to a day program and telling her husband to hurry up because he had to get her to work. And he was just mm-hmm. assuming she was delusional because she said right. that. But when Dr. Sabat spoke to her, you know, she talked about how she helped cheer up other people at the day center or helped out with activities. And, and it was clear mm-hmm. that in a symbolic sense, she saw this as meaningful work that she was doing. And, and so people may express themselves differently through more symbolic language. It doesn't mean they're psychotic. It means they're just looking at the world through a different lens. And, and we have to understand that rather than try to judge people based on our view of the world. And, for the, and it is uh, important for people to have a sense of productivity. So it doesn't really matter whether she was actually getting up and going to a, a work where it was like gainful employment, where she was, you know, getting monetary compensation for what she was doing. For her, it was productive and she was contributing something. I think as a society, we tend to think that once people are no longer gainfully employed, so to speak, that what they're doing doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't have a contribution. It doesn't have any meaning. It doesn't have any purpose. And that colors our feelings about older people in general, when in the reality is she probably was doing a great service to the people in the, in the community center. And uh, Dr. Power, she was. In- in Olive Community Services, uh, and Phyllis and I have spoken about it many a times, one of, the time, one of the things that we're trying to do is to harness that skill set and that passion that seniors have, and they've used it all their life, and how can we bring that to, to the benefit of the society? You know, yes, they're not yeah. working, but they have a lot of wisdom, and they may have one or two hours that they can give uh, and really feel feel very good about it. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And and this whole uh, concept brings up some some important thoughts in my mind. Um, number right. one, is this true? You know, meaning meaning and purpose are important to people, no matter what their age, no matter whether they have a traditional job or not. And I I would argue that when you live with a condition like dementia and you're having trouble figuring out your place in the world, that that doing meaningful things is even more important, maybe than for other people that that are more able to uh, fulfill their own needs without support. Um, there, there are a couple of, there's, there's a caveat there, and that is that, um, that we need to get people things to do where they truly can be useful. So not, not mm-hmm. fake meaning, you know, not folding clothes that get messed up over and over again, but because, because people need to truly contribute. And it takes some creativity sometimes when people have more advanced disability, but, but you can almost always find something that somebody can be part of, just if nothing else, just asking their opinion, asking for their input, taste this sauce and tell me if it has enough salt, you know, whatever it is, you can involve people in, in being part of, of uh, something where they have an important role. Um, and, and the other thing I want to say about that is that um, you're reminding me of a conversation I had recently um, with a couple of colleagues of mine who I think are people on the cutting edge, uh, Dr. Uh, Emmy Kiyota, who has started a nonprofit 
called ibasho, I-B-A-S-H-O, which is a Japanese word that means being in a place where you can uh, be yourself. And she started this nonprofit leveraging the wisdom of elders in the community to help Mm -hmm. solve community problems. And she's worked in three communities in northern Japan, Philippines, and and in Kathmandu, where they have established uh, community centers that are run by the elders of the community to respond to natural disasters, in these cases, uh, a tsunami, a a typhoon, and an earthquake. And uh, so she has actually uh, been working with that. We have to take a short break, and when we return, we'll, we'll continue this phenomenal conversation about, uh, about purpose and wisdom and our elders. So we'll be back in a few. Uh, don't forget to continue listening to Seniors Straight Talk, where we have informative conversations for the senior years of our life. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high-quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. Rubina Chaudhry is president and founder of Mars Services, an engineering management consulting firm, as well as founder and president of All of Community Services, a 501c3 providing support services to seniors, families, and the community. Olive's Live, Learn, and Thrive programs engage seniors physically, mentally, and socially. Rubina's passion for seniors stems from her experiences as an only child, living miles away from her aging parents who are over 90 years of age. She understands the issues and decisions caregivers face. Visit olivecs.org for further information. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the hosts at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now, back to Senior Straight Talk. Welcome back to Senior Straight Talk, and we're having a wonderful conversation with uh, Dr. Al Power. Uh, Dr. Power, you uh, were sharing your experiences about Senior Center, where seniors are involved in positive, proactive work. Could you please elaborate on that? Yes, I'm, thanks very much, Rabina. I was talking about um, my colleague, Dr. Amy Kiyota's organization, Ibasho. And uh, to give an example of the first project, this was set up in Okinawa, Japan, which was an area that was hit by the tsunami uh, from the great earthquake back uh, several years ago. I think it's now been eight or nine years since, I think nine years since the earthquake occurred. Um, And uh, much of the town was devastated. uh, And when they were without power uh, for a long time, was actually some of the elders of the community that helped 
younger people understand how to survive, how to preserve food, uh, you know, without refrigeration, how to how to cook without an electric stove, and uh, you know how to how to get by. And uh, so Emmy went in there with a project to help leverage the wisdom of the elders to help rebuild the community. And what she came up with um, in working with them, it was really what they came up with, was to set up what they call an Ibasho Cafe. And this is a, a multi-generational informal gathering space. It's not particularly a center for seniors or any other group, but it's a, it's a cafe where light food and beverages are served. It is run, administrated uh, by elders in the community who do this uh, completely on their own. They have their own direction. And um, they have many things to bring in different parts of the community. They have a children's English book library. So they have lots of young children in there. They have Wi-Fi so they can get people of all ages who want to stop in and maybe work while they're there. And it basically is just a place for the community to reintegrate. And it brings elders back into the mainstream, not only being face-to-face with other people in the community, but also as uh, very valued participants. Because I think what often happens, and we've kind of alluded to that right at the end of the first segment, is that older people who are no longer working, who may have more trouble getting around on their own, become marginalized. And they, uh, they not only are, are unable to interact with society in meaningful ways, but society is also deprived of their wisdom and experience. And so this is a way to try to rebalance that and bring people back together. And she says did projects in, um, in uh, Philippines, in one of the uh, townships there, where their response actually was around a uh, traveling store and rebuilding a children's school. And there's another project in Kathmandu, Nepal, after the earthquake, where they are also coming up with a way to have the elders respond and helping bring the community back together. So it's showing that, that people outside of traditional work boundaries do have things to contribute to society and that we need to find ways to formally bring elders back into the fabric of society more than we've done in the past. Absolutely. So, Rubina, I know in um, Olive Community Services, you're looking to pursue some similar initiatives. You want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, yes, yes, Dr. Powers. One of my passions is to help uh, start businesses just because of my experience as an entrepreneur. And, uh, and I'm looking at different ventures that can be managed easily centrally. And, of course, we have CPAs that are elders. We have, you know, elders of, of all capability. And then creating social enterprises that would then in turn pay for the, the services that we want to create, residential facilities sure. that we want to create. Uh, and uh, I, I'm, I'm really touched by you're sharing this experience and we'll definitely uh, look at look at what they have done and to see how we can adapt that and bring it to our southern california community to begin with i i think that's i think that's wonderful rubina and i definitely am going to put you in touch with emmy i had the great fortune of working with emmy on a uh, on a uh, grant a fellowship from the rockefeller uh, foundation uh, back in 2012, we went away to Bellagio, uh, not not the casino, but actually on Lake Como for a month, and 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 uh, there we I helped her to come up with the guiding principles of her Ibasho project before she started her first one, and and I'll just quickly run down the eight principles because they speak to the philosophy that you're talking about. The eight principles are number one: older people are a valuable asset to the community. 
Number two, uh, normalcy, creating informal gathering places. Number three, community members drive the development and implementation. Number four, local culture and traditions are respected. Number five, all residents participate in normal community life. Number six, all generations are involved. Number seven, communities are environmentally, economically, and socially sustainable. And the, the eighth one, which is a uniquely uh, Japanese concept, is the idea of embracing imperfection gracefully, mm. which is the growth is organic, and you don't create the perfect environment because that's institution. You create an environment where people need to continue to, to develop it and, right. and to let it flow with life. And, and so this idea that, that you don't want perfection, you want something to work towards so that people find meaning. Right in their daily life. And it's a really cool concept I'd never heard of until I worked with that many. And, um, but it's, uh, if anybody knows about imperfection, those of us who are getting older are experts in imperfection. <laughs> and, and, but we also know from our years of experience um, how to embrace it and how to make the best of every situation. And I think, once I, I, again, people with dementia should be part of this too because they understand all these concepts very and, well too. And, and there is that philosophy that you ne- which probably is consistent with that, that you never really truly arrive that, that you right. are a work in progress, whether it's your knowledge or what you're trying to, to create, but it, it's really a work in progress. You, you're working towards something, but you, if you really feel like you've fully arrived, then what? Then there's really nothing beyond that. So I, exactly. I'm assuming that it's similar to that concept. Exactly. That's exactly uh, what it is. Uh, and, and I think that this has enabled people to find continued meaning. Uh, for example, when their first cafe was built, they actually had a, a traditional farmhouse donated and it was moved to the spot where they were going to build it. But it was all put back together uh, by elders in the community who did the construction work. You know, it was, it was all this uh, tongue and groove stuff without, without nails and screws because mm-hmm. that was the traditional way they learned to build. But they also left certain walls and certain parts of it unfinished because they wanted the cafe to open and operate and decide, well, where does that wall need to be? How much space do we need here? What do we need right. to be doing there? So they, they actually embraced that in their physical design of the built environment, too. And, and that's very brave because a person who's, I would say, more concrete, more trained, possibly even younger, wouldn't necessarily see that. I don't know if that's just cultural or that's, an older person saying, wait, we don't have to put this right here right now. Let's see how it develops. Maybe we'll, we'll see another place for that. Um, yeah. Do you think that that's, it's part and parcel of both of those things? I agree, and, and, and this is, um, once again, some of the wisdom I've learned from Emmy. She's consulted with me on uh, different renovations and new builds. Uh, St. John's Home, where I used to work in Rochester, opened two uh, small homes using the greenhouse project model for long-term care two houses that, that each house only uh, 10 residents with some dedicated uh, workers to support them. And, and we were the only ones in the country actually to take them off campus and embed them in a community about 12 miles away from our, uh, our main campus. But, um, but when she worked with us, she did uh, an engagement with us that she calls pre-design, where she actually meets with the developers, with the architects, with the, with the leadership in the home to talk about our values, to talk about how we expect life to happen. And she also talks to hands-on staff and residents, too, uh, to try to fit the design to life instead of the other way around because so many architects will present you with a, a shell saying, here's our great design for your new nursing right. home, and then you have to fit your life into the shell they design. 
And, you know, Emmy always says that you need to write the play before you design the stage. And, uh, and so she helps guide architects and planners in that process. And, um, and it's a really valuable thing because it can save you thousands of dollars in bad design decisions, needless to say. Uh, I, I would assume that that's kind of consistent with, with Dr. Thomas's um, ideas about the greenhouse homes, that, they, that they, the participants are really involved in and how it functions. Um, and, and also um, Cameron Camp in Montessori for Dementia, it mm-hmm. really also embraces that same philosophy, that this is these people's homes. So let's hear from them how they like to see it. Yeah, both people I know very well, and, and I know it's been frustrating for me, and I know it's been frustrating for Emmy when she'll go to a project and, and she'll ask the architects or the CEO if they've talked to the residents or staff about what they want the design to be, and they look at her like she's, you know, from another planet and say, what do you mean talk to, talk to the residents? And you feel like saying, you know, if, if, how would you like it if you wanted to build a new home and I just went and built what I thought you'd like and didn't ask your opinion about that? You know? right. and we, we did some interesting things with St. John's. For example, um, there was when they were planning the, um, the uh, layout, there were, most of the bedrooms had a certain design, but there were a couple where the bathroom was a little bit different. And as you know, in the greenhouse home, everybody has a private room. And they have an ensuite toilet and shower in their room. And one of the configurations was a little bit different, and we wasn't sure we weren't sure uh, how well that would work with people who might be in wheelchairs, et cetera. And so what the architects did was they made a mock-up down in the basement of our main nursing home, and they invited both residents and staff members to come down and to kind of they had a, a mock toilet and sink and to sort of wheel people around, transfer them on and off. And they gave them post-it notes and said, you know, put notes on the wall. This is too high. This is too low. Not enough room. Tell us what you think of this design. So they actually asked the opinions of the people that would be using the room before they built it, which is, I know, a a radical concept (laughs) that you don't see very often. But I think it did help with the design being much more successful than it might have been otherwise. And and I've seen that. I was in a uh, a few months ago. I was doing some uh, work in a facility in a nursing home, traditional nursing home facility, although they had done some recent renovations. It's interesting that you say that because I was uh, rounding, you know, with the occupational therapist who was the regional director, and we went to look in a bathroom, and she said, look at these um, sinks they put in here. They're too low. They don't have any room for anybody to put anything. This is not a functional sink, she said, but they didn't ask anybody. Yeah, exactly. There's lots of things you can learn when you actually talk to the end users about how right. this is. So things like, for instance, a mirror over the sink that tilts forward, because if you're in a wheelchair, you can't see yourself in the mirror unless it tilts right. down. Uh, so things like that that you wouldn't think about if you don't ask the people that have the experience. And that's why, you, you know, know the- getting, back to, getting back to dementia a little bit, that's why the first thing I did when I started reframing dementia in my mind was to redefine it, not as any kind of brain disease, uh, but as a shift in the way a person experiences the world around her or him. Because when you go to that individual perception and experience of how the world is changing for them, that's where you find the solutions to supporting people. You don't find it in neuropathology. Uh, You find it in what's this person experiencing and how can we continue to support them with their changing perceptions. With with that, uh, could you share your thoughts on dementia beyond drugs? 
Yeah, that's where the first book came from. Just to give you a quick uh, capsule history, I started out uh, myself as a GP for about seven years and um, then heard of an opportunity to work full-time in a very large nursing home here in Rochester, New York, as part of a full-time medical staff, and I decided to check it out. I was a little burned out with the pace of work and, and not spending enough time with family, et cetera, and, and so I... I I liked the work I saw, and I made the move initially as a lifestyle move um, and, and really enjoyed the work, really enjoyed taking care of older people in long-term care and thought we were doing a great job. And, and about seven years into that was when I met, uh, speak of the devil, Dr. Bill Thomas, who had just started up the Eden Alternative, which was one of the fledgling movements to transform nursing homes into more livable and workable places. Um, and uh, at that time, he was just getting started, and I went through his training and kind of came back with the curtain pulled away from my eyes about what people need to live well. And, uh, and then uh, moved uh, to a second place in Rochester, St. John's, where I spent the majority of my long-term care work um, to try to implement that. Which, and we implemented both the Eden Alternative and also uh, built two greenhouse homes while I was at St. John's home. But it was all along those lines and really going back a long time that I was uh, discouraged about the way that we care for people with dementia, and particularly the fact that we use a lot of sedating medications when people become distressed, and in particular these antipsychotic medications that have become so much a part of the news these days. But back when I was talking about it 15, 20 years ago, it was still standard practice to give these to people. It was felt that they were helpful and relatively safe, and I felt like a lone voice in the woods, at least among medical doctors, saying these drugs are bad. And it led to conflict with colleagues and coworkers who didn't think I was giving drugs easily enough when nurses called me. And, and, and I didn't have enough of a good explanation why they were bad and what to do differently because nobody else was really talking about that, at least in the medical field. And so that led to my first book, which was called Dementia Beyond Drugs. And I had to figure it out. And I started with that definition, and I started by looking at the people who were not medical doctors but were writing about different approaches, uh, going back to the late Professor Tom Kidwin, a psychologist in England, who was the one that is credited with, co with coining the term person-centered care, which has exploded into different views of how we can approach people differently. Right. And, um, and I just started working out a way to figure out other ways to see people, other ways to understand their words and actions, and other ways to meet their needs and to support their, their living well, support their rights, uh, without just medicating people and judging them because they're unhappy. And, and um, getting back to Eden Alternative, uh, they also came out with a white paper about 15 years ago where they talked about something bigger than just medical outcomes and nursing outcomes, and that was well-being. And they came up with a framework for well-being where they talked about seven different aspects of well-being. And just very quickly, those aspects are identity, connectedness, security, autonomy, meaning, growth, and joy. And so when I began working with this sort of dementia beyond drugs approach, I latched onto that framework and said, what will happen if I take those seven domains of well-being and apply them to people with dementia? And I not only was able to instruct people on ways to support those things, not just make sure we give people their pills on time or that they don't fall or give them a, a, good, a good bath or personal care, but how do we support someone's feelings of autonomy or security or meaning throughout their lives? And what I discovered was a lot of this distress that we were blaming on dementia and calling behavioral symptoms of dementia was actually not caused by dementia. The dementia right. may affect your ability to cope or communicate or, or how you express your distress, 
But I found that the root cause of the stress was more in those aspects of well-being becoming eroded. And when I started teaching people how to proactively fill those seven glasses for people, it gave them more resilience, more reserve in the face of an incurable disease, and it helped us to approach people and support them in ways that supported their well-being and didn't lead to the kinds of situations where people became distressed. And then I saw organizations I worked with had great success in reducing and even eliminating the use of antipsychotic drugs because they had gotten to the true root cause, which was not just brain disease. The root cause was in the lack of well-being that people were experiencing. And so that's where my work has really focused over the past several years is teaching that thing that most courses on dementia don't teach about. They teach about the different kinds and the stages and those types of things, but they don't tell you how to help people experience well-being, which we all need no matter who we are in the world. Uh, Absolutely. And you actually recorded uh, introductory material for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services an educational package called Hand in Hand, correct? Designed to help hands-on care professionals to better support people living with dementia. And uh, I did that, yeah. Was, I believe it was like November 1st, 2011. I can remember the date because it was right after the Senate gave them the charge to reduce antipsychotics. They brought me down to Baltimore and I did some recording with them. That was when I was still figuring out the well-being thing, but I was just sort of working through it at that point in time. And now there is a more of a, um, I would say, a push. I think it is kind of a requirement that staff does have training in dementia, that it is offered. However, from my experience working in many different facilities, I don't know if people are really receiving it, the extent of the training that they receive, or their full understanding of it. I, as a speech pathologist, obviously always talk a lot about how we communicate with people, uh, not only our words, our facial expressions, our gestures, our tone of voice, and how that can impact somebody's, uh, how they respond to you. I had such a great connection with Cameron Camp when I met him over that, obviously, that same philosophy. Uh, But I don't see that people are really in... I, don't, I won't say embracing it, but utilizing it. I don't know how effective the training is or how often the training is given, and there is such staff turnover, uh, you know, how that's, how that's really implemented in facilities because I don't see it being utilized in the most effective ways. Yeah, and I think that um, I would say that you bring a couple of really important points up, Phyllis, and, and there are a couple of reasons, I think, why it hasn't taken off as well as we should. And even though antipsychotic drug use has gone down uh, in nursing homes, uh, there's still some exceptions to that because I think a lot of people have just switched to different categories of psychiatric meds so they don't get counted, but they're still giving people right. things. Um, and I think there's – I think. Um, uh, there's a little bit of change in labeling, too. So people are starting to write things that will get them away with it, like dementia with psychosis, even though in my mind that's not really an appropriate designation. But I think there are a couple of reasons why uh, education hasn't really stuck. Um, one of them is simply that uh, it's not just lack of education, but also some of the wrong kinds. So once again, if you take a course that says that the person striking out during a shower is doing it because their dementia is making it do them, you're going to give them a pill. Um, Whereas if you talk about things like security and autonomy, then you come up with different solutions that don't require pills. Um, But the other one that's really huge and the reason why I've been involved with the culture change field now for 23 years is because education without operational change, without systems change is worthless. You can be the most enlightened, educated person, but if the system still says 
breakfast trays are coming at eight, you've got eight people to get up in the next half hour, you're not going to do the things you need to do to work and support people with dementia because right. the system is overriding anything you've right. learned. And so until you do that deep systemic change, which a lot of homes still haven't had the appetite or knowledge well, for, um, that education doesn't take hold. But that is that is where Rubina hears me talk about this all the time with people I know in the industry, whether they're owners or operators, that uh, until there's a mindset change, um, and it, like you say, the appetite for it, um, I don't really see that that changing. Yeah. Uh, I could talk to people that I know until uh, I'm blue in the face, people who know me for years, uh, know what I talk about, what I stand for, the positive benefits of it, but... Are they really going to go down that road? Not likely, unless it's yeah, more the people that have taken it seriously and have done both the education and the operational transformation, as well as maybe tweaking the build environment too. These people have done some amazing things. The problem is right. that they just um, it has not been enough to move the needle yet. But I think the time is coming because um, people like me, who are identified as baby boomers, are looking around for either our parents or ourselves and saying, no, I'm not going to live there. What do you mean right. you rotate staff? I'm not going to have 30 different people bathing me in the course of a month, which is what happens when you rotate staff. Um, you know, um, you know my, my colleague, Danielle Greenwood, who works a lot with consistent staffing in Australia, found this out. She went to a place when she, early on in her work with, this, with, with, a, with a national award-winning approach to consistent staffing. And they had, a, they had a memory care area where they didn't move people outside the area, but they rotated staff just within that, that one living area. And even right. then, she found that the average person would have like 28 to 30 different people taking off their clothes and providing care in the course of a month. Right. And she got it down to like five. So, so that makes a huge difference. And when people start saying, I'm not going to stand for this, then maybe, maybe the almighty dollar will make people finally wake right. up and say, and, and, and that, you know, that, it should be dignity and rights and those things, but sometimes right. it's the dollar and, that does it. And that's, that's my idea, that it really has to be uh, from the grassroots level. There could be tremendous policy uh, changes and uh, that are super but they're superimposed on a system and then people figure out how to how to incorporate those policy changes into the system they already have i had visited a facility several years ago i had heard from this uh, gentleman i know that's involved with a, a company that owns many nursing homes that that they had a new administrator and he built a lovely uh, memory care unit and i wanted to go see it so i did and uh, it was uh, i mean Based on other things I had seen, it was light years ahead, but it still had light years to go. But I asked him, so what did he do when the regular staff members were either someone called out sick or they went on vacation or they left? Uh, did he rotate people from other parts of the building? And were they trained to work with the people on that unit? And, of course, I know the answer to that question, and that was unfortunate. <laughs> it's, just what you're, it's, just, it's just what you're saying. And I just want to say one other little experience that I had. I know we're getting to the end here. So several years ago I was in a building, and there was a gentleman who was uh, admitted to a facility. He had moved there from from his daughter's house. He clearly was having more advanced uh, symptoms of uh, cognitive decline. 
and she felt that he, she couldn't accommodate that in her environment any longer, so he moved to the facility. And he didn't speak any English either, which is another uh, passion of mine about the cultural, how we're meeting the cultural needs of people, older, older people yeah. in facilities and in the community. But anyway, um, he was there for two or three days, and this person came in, this caregiver, and she was from an entirely different culture. And this particular culture, it uh, doesn't matter what it was, is kind of aggressive and loud, and it was also probably her personality. She was a little more gruff, and I don't know what she did. She pulled the covers off of him or whatever. So he didn't know who this person was from an entirely different culture and what she was saying, and he lashed out at her. And so she yeah. went and told the nurse manager, and they called the police and took him out of the building. He came back several hours later, and of course, what did they do? They prescribed antipsychotic medications. In a couple of days, he couldn't pick up his fork um, because he was so drugged, and it was horrific. Um, Instead of prescribing of, behavioral changes for the staff member who'd right, <laughs> exactly, <the> exactly, <laughs> and that's my thing. You know, let me train, let me help your staff, let me work with them, let me train them in communication and and um, you know all of the, the things that go along with that, the super segmentals and you know voice and yeah. gestures and communication and skills. I'm speaking, I know I'm speaking to a speech pathologist, but. But communication skills, uh, particularly with people with dementia, are huge. I, I have said this. I can't prove it. But I personally believe that if we had consistent staff and they used all those good communication and listening techniques that we teach, I believe that at least two-thirds of all distress would disappear without any other interventions whatsoever. I agree. Uh, Dr. Powers and Phyllis, thank you so much. We are nearing the end of our, uh, of our podcast and I just want to thank you so much for introducing this concept. And I am personally going to work on tailoring the proposal for this memory care center. And I'm oh, so great. glad to know the resources. And in the last minute that we have, please share with our listeners how to reach you. And uh, we hope you would be available to us to guide us. And if you're traveling oh, to Southern so California, please let us know. Well, I get out there when you're not on our quarantine list here in New York, but at the moment. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, my, my website is alpower.net, A-L-P-O-W-E-R.net. That's probably the easiest way to find me. Uh, the two books I have out are called Dementia Beyond Drugs, Changing the Culture of Care, and Dementia Beyond Disease, Enhancing Well-Being. And I'm working on a new book with uh, Dr. Jennifer Carson from University of Nevada at Reno. And speaking of memory care, we're going to write a book on how to create integrated and non-segregated inclusive communities for people living with oh, dementia. Because we believe memory care is something that, that needs to be rethought and that um, we need to start uh, bringing people into more inclusive living environments. So we're going to write a book on some ways to think about that and some ways to start down that path. And oh, hopefully it will be out next, uh, next year. All three books, um, the two out and the one coming, are with Health Professions Press in Baltimore. Oh, that's terrific. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of this wonderful conversation. Thanks so much, Dr. Power, for generously sharing your time with us today on Senior Straight Talk. The conversation was enlightening, and I'm sure the listeners received valuable information about dementia. I know Rubina and I enjoyed it immensely. There's so much to cover. I hope we'll be able to continue the conversation at a future date. Please join us on our next episode of Seniors Straight Talk for more informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. Please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. Until next time, 
stay safe, stay well, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. Join your hosts, Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry, again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms. 